0: Jesus comes into our cemeteries with the best of news. Jesus comes into our cemeteries with resurrection. Jesus says the R word a lot. And that's what Easter is all about. The good news of resurrection. And when Jesus says the R word, he mocks death. He mocks the D word with the R word. Ralph Davis said, Jesus has power even over the realm of death. The D word is not the last word. And that's the hope of Christianity and that's the hope of Easter So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We'll take a break from our series in Colossians. And while you're turning there, let me set the context for you. Jesus has just died on the cross. His dead, limp body is still just hanging there. Now what? What do you do with the body of a man who said he had power over death? Here's what you do. You take his body down. You put it in a body bag and you zip it up. That's what you do. And that's what a man from Arimathea did. Luke 23, beginning in verse 50, hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea moved quickly to get Pilate's permission to bury Jesus. Luke tells us it was the day of preparation, which means it was on Friday evening, close to sundown. Uh, Sabbath started on Friday evening then went to Saturday at sundown, and Jewish people would prepare everything ahead of time so that they would not do any work on the Sabbath. They didn't want to break the Sabbath. So Joseph realizes he needs to do something with the body of Jesus. Sabbath is about to start, and if we don't get him down, he's going to have to hang up there until Saturday evening. The clock is ticking. And so Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives him permission to take... Down Jesus' body from the cross. Joseph wraps it up in a linen shroud, places it in a grave, which is really like a, a small cave. And then to keep anyone from messing with Jesus' body, they roll a large stone in front of the cave. You know the story, right? That's Friday evening at supper time. Fast forward to Sunday morning when people are starting to make their coffee. And a group of women who had followed Jesus and the disciples around when they did ministry, this group of women went back to the tomb. They came to anoint the body of Jesus with spices to prepare it for burial. But when they arrived at the tomb, they found that the large stone was rolled away. But even more shocking than that, the body of Jesus was gone. And they are in shock. They are flabbergasted. They are perplexed. Look at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? So the women are confused because the body of Jesus is gone. And what do these women see when they arrive? Two angels in dazzling clothes. But why two angels? What is the significance of this? Why does it have to be two angels? Why not three angels? Why not four angels? Well, if you know your Old Testament well, then you will make the connection. Because in the tabernacle and later in Solomon's temple, what hovered over the Ark of the Covenant? In the Holy of Holies. Two cherubim. Two angels. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant. On the top there with the angels. Was called the mercy seat. It had two cherubim. Two angels facing each other. One on each end. And when Christ was raised from the dead. What do these women see? Two angels sitting in the tomb, one at one end of the slab where they laid Jesus' body and one at the other end. John tells us about this in his gospel in John 20. He says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. There are two angels sitting on the slab, Where Joseph had laid the body of Jesus. One where his head was. One where his feet were. Why two angels in the tomb? It's the same reason there were two angels on the Ark of the Covenant. Mercy. To let us know that the way to God was open. That atonement was available. That forgiveness of sins was being offered to sinners. That forgiveness was even being offered to you. If you can believe that, knowing what you did last week, that forgiveness is available for you if you would just believe. The two angels tell us that heaven is open, that God welcomes sinners with open arms, not with a finger that he's wagging, Not with shame on you, but with open arms. That God stands with arms wide open to accept and welcome sinners. All who would come to him through faith in his son Jesus. Can you believe it? God welcomes people like us. And so the women peek inside and see two angels in dazzling apparel. And this scares the daylights out of them. And they fall to the ground. But the angels ask them a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And the women must be, seen, must be thinking something like this. We're actually looking for a dead person among the dead. We're in a cemetery. A cemetery. You know where dead people go? That's like asking, why do you go to Starbucks to look for coffee? Duh. We came to the place where dead people are because we are looking for our dead friend. But they forgot, or rather it didn't compute in their brains, that Jesus said he would come back from the dead. And so the angels give them a quick gospel lesson. They remind them what Jesus had said about his crucifixion and resurrection, how he would rise on the third day. And so basically, these two angels preach the gospel, preach good news to these women. And then the lights go off in their heads. Look at verse 8. And they remembered Jesus' words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. I love this. You know why I love this? Because the first evangelists post-resurrection are women. That rubs some men the wrong way. Some men hate that. Sorry, bro. Get over it. The first women, the first evangelists are women after the resurrection. It's women who get it right on Easter morning. It's women who are there to care for the body of Jesus. But do you know what else I love about these women? At least three of them were formerly possessed by demons. That's right. Formerly possessed demon possessed put that on your twitter bio just when you thought the easter story couldn't get any crazier than a man who came back from the dead and then two angels who are sitting there in dazzling clothes just scrolling through instagram on their iphone waiting for these women to show up you then find out that a few of these ladies used to be possessed by demons three of them mary magdalene joanna and Susanna were demon-possessed until Jesus cast demons out of them. Luke told us about this in his gospel earlier in chapter 8. Let me read it to you. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Cuza. Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna were possessed by evil spirits. So think like the Exorcist movie here. Picture the girl, Linda Blair, from The Exorcist, encountering Jesus. And he casts these demons out of her, and then she you know, comes to her senses. That happened to these three ladies. And then they started following Jesus as his disciples and they began supporting his ministry. Joanna was actually married to a guy named Cuza, who managed Herod's household. So he was a high-ranking official in King Herod's palace. He's a, high, he's a politician who's high up there. In fact, he was in, he's in charge of Herod's palace. So think of it this way. Joanna, who had demons cast out of her, was married to a guy who managed the White House. And you thought Easter was boring? You thought you've heard this story before? I know what happened on Easter. You think Jesus was just going to quietly walk out of the grave? Just kind of mosey out? No. He's going to include a few angels and some former demon-possessed ladies to welcome him and celebrate his resurrection. And it's these women who are there who first see and hear the resurrection. Why in God's sovereignty does he have three formerly demon-possessed women be the first to hear of the resurrection and then become the first evangelists of the church? I think it's an extra slap in the face of Satan. I think Jesus is mocking Satan, mocking death. Satan used to control these women with evil spirits. He used to gloat As he ruined their lives and ruined their families' lives. And as he tortured them, he got a kick out of it because he's sick and he's twisted that way. But now on Easter morning, they are the first to hear the good news. And they become the first evangelists. It's like Jesus is saying, and by saying I mean mocking. It's like Jesus is saying, take that devil, your former teammates, are the first to celebrate my victory. They used to cry out in agony as you tortured them, and now they will cry out that I'm alive. Jesus is just mocking Satan on that first Easter morning. He's mocking death. I love that. He's rubbing his victory in the devil's face. Understand this. Jesus walked out of the grave With a dead snake in his hand. Having crushed the head of the serpent. From Genesis 3. Satan that old dragon. He emerges from the tomb victorious. With snake in hand. And these former demon possessed women. Were the first to see it. How that must have felt for them. It's a picture and a reminder. That Jesus comes into our cemeteries with the best of news. Jesus reaches into the next world, into the world to come, the new heavens and new earth, if you will, and brings back some resurrection hope. That means that hope is comfortable in cemeteries. Think about that. Hope is comfortable in cemeteries. In fact, Jesus is comfortable in cemeteries. Did you know that our word cemetery is from the Greek word koimētērion which means a sleeping place? To call the place where we bury our dead a cemetery or a sleeping place is to confess the resurrection. We are saying when Christ returns, this will be like a huge bed where the sleeping will awake, some to life, others to eternal death. And when Jesus shows up on the final day, for those who trust in him, we're going to laugh and dance and party in a cemetery. Surrounded by piles of dirt and empty caskets. And we're going to mock death, too. We're going to say, I told you so, right to death's face. Here's what Athanasius, one of the early church fathers in the 4th century, said will happen to death on that day. He said that we would mock and spit on death. He said, So weak has death become that we mock at it now as a dead thing robbed of all its strength. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him. Hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So, so has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample it as they pass, and as they witness, as witnesses to him, deride it, scoffing and saying, Oh, death, where is thy victory? O oh, grave, where is thy sting? And that's what we're going to do one day to death. Death will be paraded before us, if you will. And we will kick at it and spit at it and hit it and abuse it and slap it and sneer at it and make fun of it. And we will grab it by the hair and we will yank its head back and say right to its face, Where is your victory now? Where is your sting, death? Death. Huh? What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? Look at me. I'm alive. Alive. And what a glorious day that will be. We'll grab death by the neck and it will bow down before us. Who knew? The biggest party is going to be in a cemetery one day. Understand this, Christian. Your resurrection will be a mocking of death. For eternity, the fact that you will have a new, glorified, resurrected body, enjoying God on the new earth, that will be a mocking of death. When you never sin again, when you never get sick again, when you never suffer again, when you never cry again, all of that will be you mocking death, the last enemy to be destroyed. Everything that you do on the new earth, for eternity, will be a mocking of death. Why? Because in this life, death mocks us. Death laughs at us when we lose a loved one. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have lived graveside. We have lived hospital bedside. We have lived in cemeteries. Every loved one that has passed has gone to a cemetery. Life has been lived graveside. And death has mocked us the whole way. We can do nothing about it. The government cannot do anything about death. We can't stop it. We can't cheat it. We can only be mocked by it until it rings our doorbell one day. But here's the good news that Jesus brings into our cemeteries. Death will die one day. There will be a death of death, and it will be the happiest of funerals. No one is going to cry at death's funeral. Everyone will laugh. Everyone will cheer. No one will cry. No one will miss death. And if we get up and share memories, we will mock death at its own funeral. We're going to roast death one day. We're going to have a roast. And just one by one get up and roast it. Make fun of it. John Piper imagines a conversation with death that goes like this, based on the truth of this verse out of 1 Corinthians 15. "O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Keep that in mind. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the conversation he imagines. The Christian says, hello, death, my old enemy. My old slave master, have you come to talk to me again, to frighten me? I am not the person you think I am. I am not the one you used to talk to. Something has happened. Let me ask you a question, Death. Where is your sting? And then Death sneeringly replies, my sting is your sin. And the Christian responds, I know that, Death. But that's not what I asked you. I asked, Where is your sting? I know what it is, but tell me where it is. Why are you fidgeting, death? Why are you looking away? Why are you turning to go, wait, death, you have not answered my question. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? What? You have no answer? But death, why do you have no answer? How will you terrify me if you have no answer? Oh, death, I will tell you the answer. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? It is hanging on that tree. God made Christ to be sin. My sin. When he died, the penalty of my sin was paid. The power of it was broken. I bear it no more. Farewell, death. You need not show up here again to frighten me. God will tell you when to come to me next time. And when you come, you will be his servant. For me you will have no sting. That's the good news that Jesus brings into our cemeteries. It's Jesus hanging on that tree for our sin. God made Christ to be my sin, to be sin, to be your sin. When he died, Christian, The penalty of your sin was paid. The power of it was broken, and you bear it no more. That means, Christian, that your sin doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus. It's nailed to the cross. You don't have any rights to your sin anymore. You have no right to feel condemned for your sin because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Your sin doesn't belong to you anymore. In fact, Christian, your judgment day was 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. On Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, that was your judgment day. That's the day that you stood before God, if you will, at Calvary, when God judged your sin by pouring His wrath out upon His Son. And the proof of that is the resurrection. The empty tomb is God the Father saying, amen, to his son's cry of, it is finished, from the cross. So when Jesus said, it is finished, on Good Friday, around 3 p.m., God the Father replied to that early Easter morning on that Sunday and said, amen. Okay, let's get back to that cemetery we were in. These women, the first evangelists post resurrection, they go to the apostles to tell them that Jesus is not there, that he's alive. And how did the apostles respond? Not the way they should have. Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So this little ragtag group of spice-carrying, formerly demon-possessed women who came to care for the body of Jesus, who hear the gospel from two angels, they return to tell the apostles that Jesus is alive. And how do the apostles respond? We don't believe you. This is a fairy tale. It cannot be real. Get this. The apostles didn't believe the gospel on that first Easter morning. On first hearing, they didn't believe it until they ran to the tomb and saw that it was true. Luke tells us that Peter got up and took off running. He had to see it for himself. Peter ran as fast as he could, and he saw the empty tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, Luke tells us. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus had taken the face cloth that was on him and folded it up nice and neat. It's the first thing Jesus did post-resurrection? He folded the laundry. Can you imagine that? Some of you like folding the laundry. And you're like, oh, this is like taking a warm, cozy pile of laundry and folding it nice and neat and putting away. Others of you, not so much. Others of you don't like order. You like disorder. And you like living out of piles. That's Okay. What's the first thing Jesus does post-resurrection? He folds the laundry. Why? Because he's mocking death. And he's saying, I am making everything new. There's a new order. I'm bringing order to the disorder. I'm being stru- bringing structure to the chaos. It's a new creation. Peter saw it when he looked inside. And then what? Luke tells us he marveled. Peter marveled. Now think about Think about the last seven or eight hours that Peter spent with Jesus on Good Friday. Think about, think about what Peter did on Good Friday. How would you like to spend your last day that your Savior was alive and this is what you did? You got in an argument when they were taking the Lord's Supper that you were the greatest. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus is instituting the new covenant and the disciples are arguing about I'm the best here. I'm the best disciple. And Peter is in on that, argu- that argument, arguing that he's the greatest disciple. That's around six, seven, eight o'clock. Not sure. Then Jesus says, "Let's go off and pray." Peter can't stay awake; he keeps falling asleep. Then they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out a sword and chops off a guy's ear. Then he told Jesus, "I will never deny you. I am committed to you." told these guys I was the greatest. I'm going to prove it to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, hold your horses, son. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And not only did Jesus, I mean, did Peter deny Jesus, Mark tells us in his gospel that he swore he cursed. He said cuss words. I blankety blank don't know that guy three times. Think about that. That's how he spent his last few hours with his Lord. And then what does he do? When he runs, he runs to the empty tomb, and he marvels. Peter shows us, don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Don't hide away in shame. Don't say, Pastor, you don't know what you've done. It doesn't matter. Look what Peter did. You run to the tomb. You run to Jesus, and you marvel. Jesus welcomes you. You come with all your sin. You come with all your back. That's the only thing Jesus wants you to bring to him. He doesn't need anything from you. He only says, I want the worst about you. I will love you at the worst place that you are. That's what Jesus says. Bring your sin to me. It doesn't matter. I don't want your good works. I don't care how many times you've read the Bible. That's not what's important to me. What's important to me as the Savior of the world is that you bring your sin to me and I give you my righteousness. That's how this works and that's what Easter is all about. You run to the tomb with all your sin in your back pocket and you look in and you marvel. You marvel that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you, for your sin. That's what we should do on Easter. Marvel. Be awestruck. I know you've heard the story a million times. Be awestruck. Wide-eyed wonder. Marvel. Why marvel? Why be awestruck? Because Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. Understand this. This is how bad we are. This is how sinful we are. This is how offensive to God we are, apart from Jesus. It literally took the sinless Son of God dying for us in order to bring us back to God. That's how bad we are. His life and death is the only thing that could save us. That's how far gone we are. But the gospel does not end at the cross, though, does it? The death of Jesus is not the end of the line. The D word, death, does not get the last word. The R word gets the last word. Resurrection gets the last word. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus beat the living daylights out of death. He beat the tar out of death. And it means that Jesus has big plans for you. He has big plans for your body. He's planning on resurrecting you and making you new. One day we will wake up from this dream. One day we will wake up from this nightmare. That's Easter. That's resurrection. You wake up and you're like, man, it's like waking up from a nightmare. That's the hope of Christianity. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. And the kids are involved in a railway accident and they die. They die in a train wreck. And then they find themselves in the final Narnia, heaven, if you will. But they don't know it yet. They just think, we're back at Narnia, because this looks like Narnia. And then Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus, appears to them. Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? and their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. So they were home. They were in Narnia. They didn't know it yet. Aslan said, Aslan said, the term is over, meaning school's out. The holidays have begun. In other words, it's summer vacation. We don't use these words here in America, term and holiday, like they do across the pond. We say vacation and what? Summer break or school's out. But it's the same idea. Eternity with Jesus means that school's out and it's summertime, summer vacation. Everything that a young child dreams about all year is finally here. No more school, joy, freedom. That's the wish of every kid, isn't it? The last day of school and the first day of summer vacation. Can you remember it, adults, what it was like? Remember the last day of school, the beginning of summer vacation, When you could play outside until the streetlights came on? Let me put it in today's vernacular. Where you can scroll on your iPhone all day until the streetlights come on? You just go and you're gone for 12 hours and your parents didn't worry about you? You just lived. You lived life. That's a picture of Easter. Resurrection is the final Narnia where our hearts leap and a wild hope rises within. Easter means that summer vacation is coming. Easter means that one day, everything that a young child thinks about all year, the last day of school will finally be here. The dream will be over. It will be the joy of Easter morning. It will be the excitement of Christmas morning. It will be the freedom of the first day of summer all rolled into one every day forever. Can you imagine that? The joy you feel this morning the resurrection joy that you feel and the excitement of Christmas morning and then the last day of school and summer begins that feeling every single day forever. That's the hope of Christianity. But to get there on the new earth with Jesus in new glorified resurrected bodies, living like it's the first day of summer vacation, to get there, we must all go through death. We must all go through the D word. Unless we are alive when Jesus returns, we all have a date with death. It's on the calendar. You can't do anything about it. No getting around that. But if we are trusting in Christ, then the inevitable on the calendar, you can run but you can't hide D word will not be the last word over our lives. Death, the D word, does not get the last word for those who trust in Jesus. Death has the next to last word, but it does not have the final word. And so my question to you this morning is, what are you going to do with this information? You've heard it. What are you going to do now? Will you come to Jesus? Will you turn from your sin, turn from living for you, where you live like you're the most important person in the world? Your eternity depends on how you react and respond to Jesus. It's a choice between everlasting peace and joy or eternal punishment for your sins, for your rebellion in hell. Hell is only for people who insist on finding their life outside of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Hell is for people who refuse to enjoy God's love. Think about that. People who refuse to enjoy God's love. Hell is for people who obstinately refuse to go to God's house where they would be greeted and welcomed by the welcoming heart of God in spite of their sin. What will you do with Jesus? He is the most kind, tender, gentle person in the universe. Yes, he is the most powerful person too. He is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God, but he is also the most tender, kind, and gentle. This is the message of Easter, is that that Jesus, powerful and kind, comes into our cemeteries with the best of news. But do you believe it? Do you feel it? What would your life look like if you believed it? What would your life look like if you believed that God's heart throbs for you, that it beats for you? What would your life look like if you really knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that you were loved by God and that there was nothing that you could ever do to spoil that reality? What if you really believe that you are completely loved, completely welcomed, completely forgiven, no matter what? Because of Jesus. What if you came away from church today believing that you are invited to live your whole life under the smile of God for all eternity? I dare you to go for it. And you just might find your chilly pride melting into exuberant joy. How do you respond to this good news of Easter? I love what Robert Capon said. He said, trust him. And when you have done that, you are living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how much heaviness and sadness your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right. And you just say, thank you, and shut up. I love that. You just give thanks, and then you shut up. That's Easter. You believe simply that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right between you and God. And you just hold out the empty hands of faith, and you say, thank you, Jesus. And now, Lord, I'm just going to shut up and receive this gift. That's it. You just believe that his life, death, and resurrection is enough. Jesus folded the laundry. And now all we have to do is give thanks and shut up. That's it. Just say thanks. And then you shut up. And you make yourself at home in God's house. And you enjoy the party. That's Easter. Will you believe this good news? I hope you do. Let's pray. Jesus, we marvel at your great love for us. For so many of us, our picture of you is that you have a frown on your face, you're scowling at us, waving your finger at us, saying, how dare you, shame on you. And that's not who you are. You're loving and kind, caring, forgiving, merciful, gracious, could go on and on and the proof of that is that you lived, died and rose again for us for people like us who push you away what amazing love what amazing love may we marvel again that you are alive may we marvel that you never sinned may we marvel that you died on the cross to bring us back home to god And then may you be glorified as we go and share this good news like those three women on Easter morning. Lord, may we go tell people about who you are and what you're like. And now, Jesus, I'm just going to say thank you and shut up. Thank you. Amen.